Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I'm a sucker for a good sports movie. There's something about like the underdog team, they face adversity. Inevitably, at some point, they're like losing a game or they're losing their season. And then that big speech happens, right? Like the coach rallies them all together or a team, uh, teammate rallies them all together and they come back to win. There's nothing better than that. Whether that's the mighty ducks in the final scene where they all start chanting, ducks fly together, right? Like that's just so powerful. And they go on to win and beat, uh, was it like Russia or something like that? So it's all about that. Uh, or there's Tin Cup, right? He keeps shanking the ball into the water over and over and over again. He's like, give me another ball, give me another ball. And eventually he lands it on the green. Or Rudy, right? You watch this whole movie about this kid who just does not, should not be playing football at all, but it's a movie about sports. So he ends up on the field and everybody goes nuts and they, they carry him off the field. And so I love these movies because in the end, like they win, Right? The dream comes true, that, that team that's terrible, that player that couldn't hit a baseball, somehow manages to hit the game-winning home run. But my favorite sports movie of all time is a movie called Little Big League. Has anybody seen that movie before? Just a few? Yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good. So this movie, Little Big League, is about a young boy who's the grandson of the owner of the Minnesota Twins, and this is completely fictional. Uh, but when the owner passes away, he actually leaves the team to his grandson, Billy. And the team is terrible. But Billy, Billy vows that they're going to be good again. And so he actually fires the head coach and he makes himself the coach. So he's like this middle schooler like coaching this Minnesota Twins. I told you, the plot is just absolutely insane. It's not even like good. Like some of you are going to like try to find it on Netflix later. Don't do it. It's just not worth it. <laughs> but this lovable misfit twins end up making the huge comeback. And eventually they make the playoffs, right? Like they're on their way to the World Series. And at the end of the movie, they play the Seattle Mariners. And at the time, uh, this was the 90s, so Ken Griffey Jr., one of the greatest baseball players of all time, like he's on the Seattle Mariners. And what's great about this movie is that they go up against the Mariners, and it's, it's Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson, this team that's like full of superstars. And the twins go, and they play them, and they lose. <laughs> In fact, Ken Griffey Jr. is treated like the villain. <laughs> so he like robs a home run, he hits another home run, he like glares at the kid as he rounds the bases. And it's wonderful. I love this movie because they lose. And the reason why I love this movie is because it feels like real life. Because it isn't all rainbows and butterflies. The team of misfits, they don't go on to win, they lose because there's a better team than them. There's better players. Even though they try their hardest and they did a really good job, they still lose. And the reason why I love it is because that's what real life feels like. I know, I know. I'm a pessimist, so. But if I'm being honest, I really struggle with the idea of hope. And the reason why I struggle with these other sports movies is because it just doesn't make sense. You know, the lovable misfits don't always win the game. And so I struggle. And so the reason why I love this movie is because they have hope, and in the end, it's crushed. You know, I look at the world around me, and I read the news, and I see the pain, and I see the brokenness. And the reality is hope is hard. Stephen Crane, he's the man who wrote The Red Badge of Courage. He's one of the most prolific writers in American history. He's also a literary realist. So instead of romanticizing life in his writing, he writes about reality. And in his collection of poems titled War is Kind, Crane writes this poem. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. I remember reading this poem a few years ago, and it immediately resonated with me. Because I often look at my own life, 
and I look at my own stress, and I look at my own pain, and I think, why is life so hard? And Crane, being a realist, writes about that, like, life is hard. And Crane's thought is that one of the reasons why life is hard is because the universe just doesn't care that we exist. The universe doesn't care if we are happy. The universe doesn't care if things go well, but we continue to cry out, I exist. Care about me. Can you see me? And I know this poem is kind of dark, but it makes sense, doesn't it? There are moments in our life where we're crying out in the pain and the brokenness of life, and we're saying, what is happening? Why can't the world be better? It's because life is hard. Oftentimes people ask me, you know, the, the, the question I get the most above everything is, why do bad things happen? And the answer I always give is because life happens. It'd be wonderful if nothing bad ever happened in this world, right? It'd be, it'd be so great if there was no pain and no brokenness. But bad things happen because bad things happen. And sometimes bad things happen in our own lives because we make bad choices. We decide to walk out of alignment with God's teaching, and we do our own things, and, and that ends up with brokenness and suffering, whether that's in our families or, or relationships or careers. Sometimes bad things happen because people do bad things to us because people are selfish, and they think they're more important than us. But a lot of times bad things happen because life happens. Your mom didn't do anything to deserve cancer. It just sometimes happens because cancer happens. None of this is because God wants us to suffer or to be in pain. In fact, we learn the opposite. And God isn't some puppet master pulling the strings of your life, forcing you to go down these paths that are dark and broken and hurtful. But God allows us to live and make a life of choices. And because of that, there is brokenness and there is pain. And that's the reason why we need hope. And today we're starting a new series called Hope Rising because we could all use a little hope. A wise person once said, you either just came out of a hard time, are in a hard time right now, or getting ready to go through a hard time. And that's true. And some of you would say you're in one of those and you hope you're transitioning to the other and really soon. And so this whole series is about this idea of finding hope and holding on to it. And that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks leading up to Easter and so here's the deal. One, one challenge I want to give you all today. So we are hosting an Easter service here. We're doing one service, 1030, right here in this space. Our goal is to pack this place out, right? We want as many people here as possible to experience and to hear about the hope that Jesus offers. And a lot of you are already thinking, like, who you can invite to Easter, right? You have somebody in your life you're thinking, I want them to have this hope. I want them to experience this. But one of the challenges I have for you all is that don't just think of Easter as the day where hope is given, but I'd encourage you to invite people to this series because everything that we talk about over the next four weeks is leading up to Easter. Everything that we talk about in this series when it comes to hope and the hope that we have that God is with us or hope that we have to get through the tough times in life, it all hinges on the fact that the resurrection happened, and that's Easter. So my challenge for you is don't just think of Easter as a day that gives hope, but allow this series to be one that builds up to that moment. And here's the thing. We, you know, we talk about this at Christmas as well. Easter is one of those times in your life where people are waiting for that invitation. People are 80% more likely to show up at a church on Easter or Christmas because they know it exists, they know it's there, and they're ready for that. And so I just want to encourage you and challenge you to not just think of Easter as the day, but this whole series is geared towards hope. And again, it all hinges on the resurrection that we'll talk about on April 1st. So here's the backstory. We're going to be reading in John 16 today. And this is toward the end of Jesus' life. And leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus spends his last days teaching and praying with his disciples. 
And one of the common themes that he talks about leading up to the resurrection is this idea that hope is coming, that hope is rising. And one really quick note, if you're, you're like, hey, I'm going to read John 16 when I get home in 17, 18, it's really confusing. So towards the end of Jesus' life, he kind of talked in riddle. It's very weird. You're gonna re- we're going to read some things today, and you're going to be like, I have no idea what that means. And that's why we do this, right? So we can talk about it together. And so, but Jesus essentially starts talking about this thing that's coming. And so his disciples aren't really sure what is going on, right? They're not really sure if they believe what he's saying is true. And he keeps talking about these things in the future. And it starts in John 16, verse 16. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see no more. And then after a while you will see me. So again, Jesus is kind of speaking real, and again, like these, these disciples are not sure what he's saying, but Jesus is talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. I always imagine as, as I read this story, and they're sitting in front of Jesus, they've been with him for a long time, and all of a sudden Jesus starts saying, you'll see me for a little bit, and then I'm going to be gone, and then you're going to see me again, that they have no idea what he's talking about. And the story continues, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a while you will see me? because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And so they're confused. And it makes sense because Jesus is kind of talking in code. He's talking a little bit cryptically. They're wondering, is Jesus leaving town? Why can't we go with him? How long is he going to be gone? And, And up to this point, Jesus has been doing ministry for about three years. And his disciples had been with him since the beginning. And so his 12 disciples, the people that Jesus is talking to in this moment, had been with him when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They'd seen Jesus heal people. They'd seen him feed over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. They'd seen him walk on water. And they'd seen whole towns of people choose to follow him because of the grace and truth that he offered. And so these 12 people were committed to following him. They would give everything they had for him. They loved Jesus. So when he starts talking about the fact that he's going to leave, and in the future, when he starts talking about the fact that he's going to be persecuted and beat and murdered, He talks about the fact he's no longer going to be with the disciples anymore. This is crushing for them. Their whole life is hinged on this guy. He has taken care of them for three years. They walked away from everything that they knew, their career and their family. They walked away from it all to follow him. And so when Jesus starts saying, hey, in a little while, I'm going to be gone, they struggle with it. They don't believe it. They think he's messing with him. But once it sets in that what Jesus is saying is true, they start to feel hopeless And even though they don't exactly understand what he means, this feeling of hopelessness starts to creep up in their life, and they're afraid. And that's the foundation for this series. There's moments in our lives when things are not going well, whether that's our family or our career or even just our purpose in general. We're wondering what's going on, and we feel this hopelessness. The disciples, when they felt that way, Jesus responds with multiple messages of hope. This is what he says, continuing the story. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to him, or said to them, Are you asking one another, or asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And again, Jesus is, is foreshadowing, he's talking about his eventual death on the cross and his burial, and that's when they won't see him anymore. When he talks about, I'm going to come back, it's his resurrection. And he's saying that you'll, you'll feel grief because of that. This is everything that they know is taken from them. And you have to understand, in that moment, like they've been following Jesus for three years, and they've seen him do incredible things. But when Jesus dies on a cross and he ends up being buried, there's a moment where they think, is this real? And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be grief. There's going to be pain. You're going to feel that. But don't worry, that grief will turn to joy. 
this is the good news of Jesus. Like this verse is the, is the gospel, the gospel meaning good news. That there's a reality that there will be pain and there will be brokenness and there will be sin and we will weep and we will mourn and we will be grieved. And Jesus says the world won't care. They'll watch it happen. But grief will turn to joy because Jesus has resurrected from the dead. So the first thing that Jesus teaches us about joy is that we can have hope because grief will turn to joy. Now, let's talk about this word joy for a minute, because I think a lot of times we're not really sure what that means. And I think it's safe to say that we want joy in our lives or, or happiness in our lives. We want joy in our marriages. We want it in our work. We want it in our families. But the problem is we don't tend to actually pursue joy, right? Most of the time we pursue pleasure. That's what the world wants from us. That's what the world tells us to do is pursue pleasure. And I recently heard about a study on the effects of pleasure and joy on the brain, in summary, a neuroscientist said that there's a major difference between pleasure and joy, and the key to understanding this difference is how your brain works with each of these things. Pleasure releases dopamine, and joy releases serotonin. They both feel good, but there's a big difference between the two. Because the natural response to pleasure, or dopamine, is that we want more, that we crave more. But dopamine is also a neuroinhibitor, which means that once, they, once you get that dopamine release, once you feel that high... You have to indulge in more than next time in order to get the same feeling, to get that same pleasure. Dopamine also deadens our capacity for serotonin. And so pleasure actually deadens our capacity for joy. And pursuing pleasure will ruin your joy. Now some of you are thinking, okay, like what is, where does dopamine come from? Dopamine is something that, that we get that hit from drugs or alcohol or pornography. But in the same study, this neuroscientist actually found out that your notifications on Instagram on your phone or the notifications of text messages on your phone also release dopamine. Because when we get that buzz, when we see that number, when we, we feel that phone, we start to think, I'm wanted, I'm liked and, it liked, and it releases dopamine, and those things deaden our capacity for serotonin. One researcher put it this way, Facebook makes you sadder. So in summary, destroy your phone, people. The natural result of dopamine and pleasure is wanting more, but the natural result of serotonin and joy is enough. It's contentment. And the full extent of dopamine is addiction. The full extent of serotonin is feeling content and feeling peace. Things that release dopamine are sex, gambling, and heroin. Things that release serotonin are exercise, sleep, serving others, quality time with friends and family. Facebook releases, or Facebook, it does release dopamine. Fast food releases dopamine. Cooking releases serotonin. And the reality is we're in a world where it tells us to seek out this pleasure, and so we like dopamine. And dopamine can be good in the right context. There isn't any good context for heroin, but sex inside of marriage is good. And here's why I bring this up. We have all chased pleasure at some point in our life, and it's left us feeling empty. It's left us wanting more chasing more. But joy is different. Joy brings contentment. Joy is everlasting. And so when Jesus says joy will come, he isn't talking about a temporary hit that will get you through the next few hours. He is talking about real joy. And that's one of the reasons why we can have hope. That in this broken and messed up world, that we can have joy. And it can be everlasting. Because the grief that you're experiencing right now, whatever it is in your own life, is temporary. It won't last forever. And it can be joy. 
And the best part about the hope that Jesus is talking about in John 16 is he's actually foreshadowing, again, his death and resurrection. So when he's talking to the disciples, he's saying, hey, this is going to happen. It's something that they actually have to wait for. They don't know when anything's going to happen. They don't know until the moment comes. But the great news for us in being here today and reading this today is that we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for this joy to come because we know, we read scripture and we know that the resurrection happened. And those disciples who are waiting and waiting and waiting in that moment, the grief was coming because of Jesus' death. Like we know, we've read it, we see and we know the truth that Jesus died and resurrected from the, the dead. So we don't have to wait for that joy. That joy can be ours right now. So the grief you are experiencing in your marriage can turn to joy. The grief you are experiencing with your job can turn to joy. The grief you are experiencing as you spend another Friday night alone can turn to joy. The grief you're experiencing as you struggle with insecurity can turn to joy. Because God's in the resurrection business and can bring those things back to life. And that's how grief turns to joy. But you have to let God work in your life and trust him and follow him and let him lead because that's what the disciples did. And eventually they experienced that grief and they experienced joy beyond anything they ever imagined. And the story continues. This is what Jesus says. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The second thing that Jesus teaches his disciples is that no one can take away their joy. And so for us, no one can take away your joy. That the grief that you're experiencing right now is just a season. We actually talked about seasons a few weeks ago in our integration series, and there are seasons in your life, right? There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to search and a time to give up. But these seasons are temporary. They don't last forever. And so this season of grief that you are in, it's temporary, and joy is coming. And once you have that joy, once you experience that joy, no one can take that from you. Here's a question that, that I often wrestle with, and I'd love for you guys to wrestle with as well. Some of you would say that in your life, you once experienced joy. You don't feel like you're in that season right now. You feel like all you feel is grief and everything and every part of your life. And if you once had that joy, but you don't feel it anymore, and Jesus teaches us that no one can take it away, where did it go? What happened? If no one can take it from you, what did you do with it? Where did you leave it? When did you decide to walk away from the joy that Jesus offers. A few years ago, one of my college roommates went through um, just an incredibly messy divorce. Uh, he and his wife, when they got married, they were high school sweethearts. Um, they actually chose their college together. They got married seven days after they graduated. They ended up going back home and building a house where they grew up. On, on the surface, it all looked perfect. But after a few years of marriage, he found out that she was cheating on him. And he was devastated. Every part of his life revolved around this girl. And so she moved out, leaving him in a house that he couldn't afford. At the time, he was working a job that he hated uh, because he took a promotion that he didn't want because that's what his wife wanted for him. He was no longer going to church. He didn't have community because he had to work on Sundays. And he was in the town where he grew up. And so people were starting to see her out with the other man. And within months, everybody he grew up with knew that something was wrong. He started to fall into a really bad place. And he stayed this way for years. And I would see him about once a year. We'd meet up uh, in the D.C. area. And every time I saw him, things had gotten worse. He started drinking heavily to cope. He stopped letting Jesus play any sort of role in his life. 
He was lonely and angry and distant. Until about a year ago, last fall he came up to Frederick to visit us before collective launch, and we went out to dinner, and afterwards went to Brewer's Alley to grab a beer and to catch up. And when we were hanging out, it was clear that things were different. As I was sitting down across from him, I actually saw him smile, which was the first time I saw him smile in about four years. And so I was happy for him, but of course I was confused because I didn't know if anything changed. I hadn't seen his life change. He was still working the same job. And so I asked him, what's different? What's different now than last year and the year before and the year before as I watch you slowly go deeper into depression and pain? And what he said to me was just, it was good. He said, I got tired of being sad and I took my life back. See, for years following the divorce, he let his ex-wife hurt him daily, sometimes intentional and sometimes unintentional. And one day he woke up because he was tired of letting her take everything from him, take his joy from him, take his peace from him, take his hope from him. So he sold the house, he moved out of state, he started a new job, and he took control of his life again. And some of you need to do that. My mentor tells me all the time, and this is kind of like how he reprimands me, he says, you're ridiculously in charge of your situation. And it's true. You are ridiculously in charge of your situation. When it comes to your job, when it comes to your family, when it comes to your relationships, you are in charge. And if you don't feel like there's joy in your life, to be honest, that's probably your choice. It doesn't mean there won't be grief. Having joy doesn't mean there won't be pain. It doesn't mean there won't be brokenness. It doesn't mean there won't be, won't be sin. It doesn't mean that there won't be these deep feelings of, of just pain and brokenness and sadness in our own lives. But what we know is that season is temporary. And once it's over, there's joy. And the joy is, joy is yours, yours to keep. But the reality is for some of you, you had that joy and you walked away from it, and that's up to you. There's nothing that we can do in this room to change that. You have to make that decision to be ridiculously in charge of your own life and take that joy back. Jesus continued, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Again, this is one of those things where Jesus is talking and you just know the disciples are sitting there going, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's pretty confusing. He says, you will no longer ask. You have not asked. Ask and you will receive. And so most Bible scholars believe that Jesus is actually talking about prayer. So it's actually a little bit more, more simple than what we make it out to be. Jesus is talking about prayer. He's telling the disciples that until now when you prayed, you prayed to God and God only. And Jesus, again, is foreshadowing the fact that he's going to resurrect from the dead. And he's saying, soon you'll be able to ask for things in my name. And Jesus is saying, meaning someday you'll pray to me. And this isn't an ego thing. It's not a power thing. This is Jesus letting the disciples know that God is more attainable than you think he is. Because up to that moment, they'd seen Jesus do amazing things. And he had said, hey, I am the son of God. But they were still skeptical. It makes sense. Right? They were still doubtful. They still weren't sure the resurrection was what it all hinged on. But Jesus is saying God's relatable, that God's with them, and God will always be with them. To take it even a step further, Jesus is actually foreshadowing the gift of the Holy Spirit that will be given once he ascends into heaven. And this is a gift that is given to all the followers of Jesus. And the idea is if Jesus is God with us, right, he was with the disciples, the Holy Spirit is God in us. And it's this gift of the Holy Spirit that makes your joy complete. Let me sum that up in one tweetable sentence. It makes it a little bit easier, right? <laughs> For the people who choose to follow Jesus, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and their joy will be complete. In other words, the only way to have complete joy is through Jesus. 
is through a life where you let him be the leader. And that starts with faith in Jesus and trusting that he is the son of God. It starts with believing that he died on a cross for our sins and resurrected three days later. And once you believe that's true, and you have that faith, the next thing you do is you take that step. So it's one thing to believe, but it's another thing to take that step and actually say, Jesus, you are the leader of my life. And the thing that we talk about here all the time is baptism. There's this really cool story in the book of Acts. And so after Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead, he actually ascends into heaven. So he spends some time with them as a resurrected Jesus, and he ascends up into heaven. And so after he's gone, the disciples are left. So at that point, they believe and they have confidence, but they have to figure out, like, what do we do now? Right? He told us he'd leave and then come back and then leave again, and he actually did it. And so what the disciples do is they actually go out and they tell everybody that they know about Jesus. And tell everybody that they know that this is true, that we saw it happen. And as, he's telling, and as this group of disciples are telling this crowd, Peter actually speaks up. And this is what Peter says in Acts 2, 24 through 28. He says to a crowd of thousands of people who are non-believers, who weren't sure about Jesus, who are skeptical people. This is what he says. But God raised him from the dead, again, meaning Jesus, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes David, which is really cool is we actually just finished the series on David. And so Peter actually uses the words that David said, and this is, what, this is what Peter quotes. David said about him, meaning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life you fill me with joy in your presence. And so Peter tells this crowd of people this story. And Peter says, let me sum up Jesus for you. Let me sum up the son of God. Let me sum up the man who resurrected from the dead that we saw. And this is what he says. And the natural response is this crowd says, okay, if that's true, what do we do? If that's true, if this hope is real, if this joy is real, if Jesus actually conquered death and, and, and the disciples are saying it's true because they saw it, what do we do? And then Peter replies in Acts 2.38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying repent, which means to turn away. Turn away from that old life. Turn away from the life where you felt like you were the leader of it. To change that way and be baptized. Baptism is the immersion into water. It's the death of your old self and the raising up of your new self. And what Peter is saying, do that and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's how your joy is made complete. It doesn't mean everything will be easier. One thing that we try to talk about here all the time is following Jesus doesn't mean your life will be perfect. It just doesn't. I wish it was. It'd be so easy for me to stand up here and say, all your problems would be fixed if you followed Jesus. Because I think everybody here would be like, yep, I'm ready. But the reality is there will still be pain. And it doesn't mean that your grief will immediately disappear once you get out of that water. What it means is that your hope is no longer found in yourself or in your career or in this world or in the relationships that constantly let you down. What it means is you put your hope and your joy firmly in Jesus and Jesus alone. So I want to encourage you if you've never made that decision or put your faith in Jesus, you've never taken that step to be baptized, what's holding you back? On Easter, we actually have two people that are going to make that decision, and we would love nothing more to celebrate that. And I don't think there's anything cooler than being baptized on Easter. Everything that we do here hinges on the resurrection, right? Like the birth of Jesus is really good, but if he didn't die and raise from the dead, he's just a guy that was born, right? 
And so we're celebrating baptism on Easter, and we'd love for you, if you're interested in that, or if you're struggling with that, if you want to talk about that, come talk to me after service. Check off baptism on your card. I'd love to talk about what does it mean to, make, to take that step and figure out how to make your joy complete. And the two people who are getting baptized that day, they would love nothing more for you to, than to join them. They would love for nothing more than for you to bury your old self and be raised as your new self. And here's the best part about what Jesus says in this story in John 16. This is probably one of my favorite verses of all time. So after Jesus talks to his disciples about joy, and he says, this is going to happen. Your joy will be made complete. There will be no more grief. It will go away. Like, it's yours forever. This is what he says in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So the reason why you can have joy and the reason why you can have hope is that while the world will be full of trouble, like Jesus doesn't pretend like it won't be hard, that the world will be full of pain, the world will be full of regret, but the world and everything that comes with it has been overcome by the grace and truth of Jesus. And because of that, you can have hope. Two weeks ago, um, I attended a funeral for a six-month-old boy named James. And James was born to a friend of mine uh, named Jay that I'd known since college. And when baby James was born, he actually had a heart condition, and he required multiple surgeries. He also had trouble breathing, so he had a breathing tube. And this was James's life. It was every single day of his life was struggling with breathing and struggling with his heart. And he was born in a hospital in D.C., and he actually never had the chance to leave. And while James was in the hospital, he went through multiple surgeries, and every day he actually started to get a little bit better. So much so that his parents actually started making plans about how to take him home. How do we care for this kid that needs 24-hour care every single day? And all signs pointed toward the fact that James was coming home. But a few weeks ago, something happened, and James passed away suddenly. And so two weeks ago, when we were having all that snow, people from all over the U.S. gathered to celebrate the life of this baby named James. And to be honest, the celebration was beautiful, and it wasn't the first funeral I've been to for a child. To be honest, I, I hope it's the last. I never want to go to one of those again. But the reality is I know it won't be because life happens and life is hard. But the thing that sticks out to me about the funerals I've been to for these little kids is that you know there's pain. And you know there's grief. I don't think there's anything worse. And in these devastating moments, the parents in both of these times have stood up and talked about this joy that they have and this hope that they have. And the only reason why they can do that is because their foundation is directly rooted in Jesus. And that they recognize that this world is temporary. And they recognize that their children are spending eternity in heaven with God. And we know that in heaven there's no more pain, and there's no more tears, and everything is made new. So when Jay, the father, stood up in front of his fan, friends and family to talk about his son, he talked about his pain talked about how he was confused, how he didn't know what was going on in his life. But he also talked about joy. And as he talked and he spoke about his son that he loved and the opportunity that he'll get one day to spend eternity with him and how he had joy and hope in that, I believed him because I could see it in his eyes and I could hear it in his voice. But the only way someone can lose their six-month-old son and say those things at a funeral about joy and hope is because those things aren't rooted in this world, but rooted in the one who overcame the world, 
and they're rooted in Jesus. And so for some of you, you would say that you're a follower of Jesus. You would say that your hope and your joy is firmly rooted in him. And so if you're here today and you're struggling to have that feeling, you're struggling with that joy, it's gone. I want to encourage you that that joy is yours. And no one can take that away from you. It comes from Jesus and Jesus alone, and that's yours. If you don't follow Jesus, the question I want you to think about and wrestle with this week is what do you do when the storm of life is raging? What do you do when life is throwing everything at you? What do you do when your wife says she doesn't love you anymore and wants a divorce? What do you do when you try and try and try to get pregnant, but you don't conceive? What do you do when you graduate from college and you feel more lost than when you went in? Or when you hear the diagnosis is cancer? What do you do in that storm? Will you have hope? Will your grief turn to joy? Jesus teaches us that joy can be ours. Not temporary, superficial joy that only lasts for a little bit and leaves us craving something more and something bigger, but real joy, joy that brings contentment, joy that comes after grief, joy that cannot be stolen, no one can take that from you, and joy that can be complete. But that joy and that hope can only come from Jesus. And that joy you long for in your life, the the way you're chasing society and the way you're chasing what the world tells you joy comes from, the reason why you feel empty is because it's not in the right foundation. Because perfect joy can only come through our Savior who conquered the world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that that following you isn't just a list of rules or a list of things that we don't do. But God, when we choose to follow you, there's joy that overcomes all the pain and the grief and the brokenness that we have. God, that even in those dark moments and even in those low moments, when our foundation is rooted in you, we know that there's joy. Because this world's going to throw everything it has at us. This world doesn't care that we're here, but you do. And you recognize that this world is temporary, but eternity with you is forever, and there's no more pain, and there's no more tears, and we're made new. So God, I just pray that this week that everybody here in some way or another pursues that joy. Whether it's something that they've had and that they lost or something that they've never even experienced before, God, I pray that we all just take a step forward to, to pursuing that joy and putting that joy back in our lives. God, helping us have that joy and the ups and downs of life and, and the grief that we share. God, thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you provide for us and the way that you care for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.